Hello and welcome to this week's Why Debate. So um, what we do is we look at stories, we look at facts, we look at anything that has been taken as read where society just assume it's correct um, or something that we think, why is it so important? And this week we went through a book called Wired for Story. Now, I'll be completely honest, um, I hated it. It was a struggle to read. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I, I finished it last night just, it was like, it was like grating your skin off your own hand. It was horrible to read. However, there was some quite interesting things inside it. Um, so hopefully a few of the people who follow us are on today and they're going to um, have also read the book. Um, how did you find it, Callum? Um, I think <laughs> I didn't have quite the same uh, reaction, the same sort of like gruesome reaction as you, but I uh, I also wasn't a massive a massive fan. No, I have to say, um, I actually felt that. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, gi- I'll, I'll give everyone a quick lowdown of the book itself, and w- then I'll say what I thought was inside it. I'll, I'll say what was actually inside it, and then I'll say what I thought was going to be inside it. And in this in this instance, I think my expectation might have killed this one for me. So, um, so the book itself, um, wide well, story, uh, it explores the differences between just writing well and telling a fantastic story, um, and it does it by uh, two in two ways. It explains the cognitive secrets, so um, the stuff in our head that uh, makes us wired for story, makes us love certain stories and it also goes into storytelling devices that you could use as a writer to get yourself um to put yourself in a really good position where your readers are super interested in what you're talking about and you're not falling into any uh uh, any traps that um might send them off and distract them somehow however uh i could tell that the writer had uh, a background in writing and probably teaching, I'm pretty sure she's a teacher, um, but not in the cognitive neuroscience and the sort of evolutionary biology part of the um, part of this kind of like story, which is uh, why I struggled because I was really expecting it to go like super in depth into that stuff, and um, which is something I'm you know I would be really interested in, but it kind of like I felt like it went over the surface with with that it was like hey there's yeah here's a here's a scientist he said this or here's this person he said that and then it quickly gets back into what she knows which is the writing element of it which you know maybe there's some helpful stuff in there but well there is but uh i i think the expectation like i said was what killed it for me yep i think she's a brilliant writer she understands writing she doesn't understand the science and in my opinion if you're going to write a book about stories, Wired for Story, right? It has to have some fucking stories in it. <laughs> so, so my issue wasn't the the, the book and the, and the content. I felt like I was going back to school. I left school at 14 because I hate teachers. Not teachers. I don't hate the person, the teacher. Uh, yet you're a teacher. <laughs> I do hate teachers. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I wore my brownest shirt today to look extra like a teacher just to like trigger teacher. you. Yeah, but I, I couldn't be... Uh, the way they teach parrot fashion in schools and the way they teach you've got to learn lists and things like that and it's like no relevance. And I felt like Wired for Story, the reason we picked this book is because I love reading stories and I love telling stories and I love stories in general. I think they're absolutely brilliant. Um, and for everything I do involved in sales and everything else, it's all based around story because it's the most powerful thing. And it's the most powerful thing full stop. But I think there was a book written 
which was I don't know how many how many pages was it four hundred pages three hundred pages of of of, of technique. If you, if you want to learn to be a great writer, this book is brilliant. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. The problem is if you want to learn and you want to enjoy learning, then this is probably not for you. That said, there was a lot of real valuable things in there. If you can, don't mind. Um, bearing through with the writing i mean i mean who wants to read a book that's got loads of long words in it not me maybe you do because you understand them all but there again it's like it's, it's it's kind of why make it super complicated for no reason yeah which is actually something she picks up on in the book i found it a little bit ironic to be honest is that there was a whole part of one of the chapters that talked about um how we're not trying to like show off you know this isn't we're not like it's not word porn we don't want to like when you know we don't want to show wow look how big my vocabulary is uh you want to make your story as is as understandable as communicable communicable as possible um which she ends up going back into it reminded me so much of being in university honestly it was like i think she is a university lecturer so it was just like listening to a university lecturer um it was like yeah, you gotta gotta appeal to everyone. And then suddenly they just use a bunch of um really uh difficult language and you're just like, wait, what are you what concept are you trying to, you know, get across here? Uh surely you could get across in a simpler way. I found that even in a university with emails, like when I was responding to you like, I'm not gonna be in class today or something, you'd write an email and your response would be like, Is this Shakespeare or is this my lecturer just trying to respond to my email? <laughs> they loved it. They lived for it. <laughs> Let's look at some of the positives I took from the book. Even though it was a difficult yes. read, even though it was complicated, even though they used a lot of big words, there were a lot of positives I took, took, took from the book. One of the key points that they point out very, very early on in the book is that story has been passed down from generations and generations. So so from when people were, were writing on cave walls to, to pass down stories, our history has been passed down by story. Everything we do has been passed down by story. Story was pretty much, it wasn't designed, but it was kind of, it's designed in us. So I don't know what the word is I'm looking for uh, there, but it's kind of something that's in us that ensures our survival. We can pass down, um, we can pass down stories to teach our ancestors, uh, or people that, that sorry, not our ancestor, but but our kin, that um, this is something you need to be dangerous of. And what they've figured out in recent years, and I don't think this was in the book, but what they've figured out in recent years is the way your brain reacts to a story, it's as though you're actually living it. So when somebody tells you a story, okay, that, that your brain actually lives that story, it imagines it, it's thinking, that's why sometimes if you've read a book that's really got to you and there's been a great scene in that book, you can actually almost picture the scene in your mind and you never forget it, right? And so, 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 so using story to, 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 to teach is by far, in my opinion, the most powerful teaching method on the planet. What did you think about that section? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that whole, the concept you're talking about there, uh, I think it, it relates to mirror, mirror neurons, I think they're called in, in our brains, which when you see the word jump, for example, the character in the book jumps, the part of your brain that controls jumping fires up to just like, almost like a, yeah, we could do this. Like, uh, this is something that we can do. And it kind of like, yeah, that's clearly where the, the learning element comes from through, um, Stories, so, which I think is really. So, cool. do you think if I just read books about weightlifting and keeping fit, I won't need to go to the gym anymore? Right. Well, that's actually really interesting because uh, there was a study that was all about um, 
watching tape you know they call it watching tape when it comes to like fighting and, and sport they they say watching tape which is watching videos of people doing the sport that you want to do and what they did was they got complete novices i can't remember the sport um but they got complete novices people that had never played before and they got um one group just uh went straight in and did the sport and the other group were told a month in advance and they had to watch a certain amount of video every day now it's slightly different because it's video so i think that there there's a visual element but um the people that did the watch the video and the people that had went in completely cold th there was no match for the two of them it was like the other people had played before it was like the people that watched the video had played before because that, i've got a great example of that we played five aside i used to work for a company called hsbc when it, when it, when it, i got an office junior job so i worked in the post room for them um and when i worked for them we had a five aside team so i was obviously in the post room i was the youngest in the office so i was the youngest fittest um thingy so i was always on the team but i'd never really played five aside i'd always played uh, 11 aside football so i didn't understand the structure and the strategy and how to think it so what i did is i actually went home and found a load of videos and um, but back back then it wasn't like youtube didn't exist yet and things like that but or it maybe did but it wasn't like it is now and i watched yeah. a lot of videos on five aside and positioning and how they play it and all the rest of it and I became really, really good, and so did my team become really, really good by me being able to focus on positional play in five-a-side football, which before watching the videos, I didn't have a clue, didn't understand it even even slightly. Absolutely. It's like you almost uh it's like an introduction to the to the sport without even getting, you know, getting close to playing with it. I had the same thing with jujitsu, massive fan of the UFC and everything before. So when I um started getting into jujitsu, I was like, ah this works like i know this position because i've seen it on tv and i know that this works and i know that from here you can do this because i've watched you know khabib do it or i've watched uh and you know another great sort of wrestling uh, uh athlete in the ufc do it and uh yeah it's strange how we can put those two things together and i think it's exactly the same with stories um stories in themselves just i think are brilliant learning tools when i'm rubbish with names i'm really bad at learning people's names I think it's because my focus is awful. So when people are telling me their names, I'm just going to sleep and I'm like, wait, who are you? What's going on? And as a teacher, uh, you have to remember people's names. You're like a professional name learner because you've got like 40 kids in front of you, especially when I was in Asia. My God, it was so difficult because they all take English names on top of their, uh, they obviously have their Chinese name, Cantonese or Mandarin name. And then they um, have an English name to make it a little easier for you. Um, but a lot of them are the same. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, in Hong Kong, it was Anson. Everyone was called Anson because I think there was a pop star called Anson. And um, it was a nightmare to remember who all these people were. So what I started to do when I went to my other teaching jobs was that when they introduced themselves to me, I would make them say one word in front of their name, a describing word about themselves or that was funny. Maybe it was an alliteration. So I would say like, oh, I'm clumsy Callum. Um, and they would say, you know, I don't know, um, for example, um, uh, so I had a great one who he couldn't remember his, uh, he couldn't think of one. He was like, oh, I have no idea. And his name was Brian. I, was like, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and he kept on thinking of different things. He couldn't, um, couldn't get a, a little name, a nick nickname for me. So I nicknamed him Keep Trying Brian. And I never forgot that kid's name. <laughs> Keep yes, Trying Brian yeah. was like always there. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, jumping jade, all of those things that just go into your head. And then because you've created a little story about this person, yep. they 
they stick in there. It's really um, fascinating how how much easier it made it. Yeah, I, I did it when I was doing exams for to become an insurance broker. Um, and there was a re, I don't know why, do you know all the elements and I can't remember what it is. I think it's called periodic table. table. Yeah. I needed to memorize every single one of them. So I created this, I I used to get out of my car and I had about a mile walk every single day because I worked in Manchester city center. So you had to park pretty far out to get a parking space or spend 16 pounds a day on parking. So, and what I did is I kind of created this little story that helped me remember it. And it was about this little guy that was wandering along and he jumped into a remote control car. Then he went up a ramp and he flew across the thing. He hit a helium balloon that popped and then he dropped and then he set on fire. And and I I created this little story in my head that enabled me for when I went into my exam to remember every single, um, every single element on the periodic table um, and it worked absolutely brilliantly and over the years actually now you just said it i've done that on so many different occasions so when i if if, if i'm if i'm creating this presentation and i'm going to be so so like say say i was doing a presentation today and i was actually going to be speaking but i wasn't allowed to use slides which obviously you prefer to use slides if you can get away with it but i had to remember that's kind of what i'll always do is create a little stupid story and i won't create it as though it's me in the story I'll always create it as though it's a little character in the story, a little tiny character. I don't know why I always use little characters <laughs> in my story that's in my head. And then I'll always remember and I'll, I'll kind of, I'll watch them having this little journey. As I make the story up in my head, I'll watch them having this little journey that reminds me each step of the way as to what it is I'm doing. And I'll never forget. And that way I can, I could get up on stage now um, and I could speak for an hour on a subject and get everything in the perfect order because I've got a little character story where where a little guy will do something and when they drive something, it usually involves remote control cars that they jump on and drive rather than normal cars and things like that. But because it's not real world, it's very easy for me to remember. So story, I guess from an education perspective, is absolutely brilliant. And you do learn that in this book. If you can, yeah. um, if, 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 if you it can. Just, yeah, it just blazes really. over it really fast is the problem I had. It was like chapter one pretty much told you all the cognitive things that you needed to know throughout the entire book. There wasn't really any more of cognitive story revelations there are a few one of the great things i got from it was 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 regarding the three elements of a story um i don't know if you remember them so basically every story should and and it's and and i I say this every single week right every every story should be based around a a problem right Mm -hmm. every story should be based around a problem i mean it's it's like if you look from Harry Potter, one of the greatest stories that's of, 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 of our generation, all the way to stuff that's mentioned in the book, like Die Hard, there's a problem. Um, and, and then there is a theme, which is a human theme, and then there's a quest. So every, every story should have those three elements. So, so basically, um, when I explain that is, is obviously there's a problem that, that needs to be solved throughout the story. But then there's a theme that which is a human one, and then there is also a quest, and and those two things need to be taken at. Which um, I think there's Hero with a Thousand Faces does it does it best, but we've not we're not talking about that today. Um, no. But so so what you've got is the human theme is how they're going to change internally. So when you watch, let's say Spider Man for example, if you watch the film Spider Man, you know Spider Man starts off he's a little nerd, he gets bullied, he's an absolute muppet, right? And then as it gets on further into the story, he becomes this real cool guy who is very confident, who the girls like, who people, and he, he changes internally. And then there's also the second story is the quest, which is the story of where he's going to fight a bad guy or he's going to... So every single story, every single story, and, and I don't care what story it is you look at throughout 
history, most 99.9% of all successful stories. Harry Potter started out as a nerd under the stairs and he ended up the cool kid in Thingy, but that wasn't his quest. That was his internal transformation. So, so, so everything has, it starts with a problem. The, the main person has a problem. They have a quest that they have to go on. And during that quest, they also have an internal transformation that takes them from being either a nerd or a, a, a nasty person that people don't like, or, or it depends. There's different types of characters that you that you can go after. Yeah, um, I, I, my favorite. I mean, my favorite uh, story, so to speak. I think my favorite story is the the Lord of the Rings. I, I'm a massive fan of the Lord of the Rings, and um, I always find that people. Feel I don't have you uh, read or watched Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I've watched them all a few times. Wicked and the Hobbit. So, yeah, not quite as good as the Lord of the Rings. I thought uh, on on film definitely, but um, I find that people fail to resonate with Frodo. I don't know about you, but I feel like the people reading or not so much reading because there's a bit more to him in the book, but in the film, I find lots of people like. Oh, it's just kind of whiny, you know, like because his quest is kind of like the quest. But I think that's because in, internally, he kind of there's not that much turmoil from sort of the word go. He's like a bit confused, but he's always like down to adventure from the very beginning. So there isn't that much internal journey that it sort of comes that he has to do the quest on his own is kind of like the main sort of internal thing from at least from the first movie. So there's not a lot of that internal story, but Aragorn on the other hand is a lot of people's favorite characters. And I don't think that's just because Viggo Mortensen in the movie is a badass, but I think it's um, when you first meet him, he's a, he's a nobody. He's this scruffy criminal looking ranger from the North, which is a pretty shady place and no one really trusts him. Um, and the hobbits don't trust him, and he has to. He earns their trust by his um, heroic deeds and his uh, being extremely competent. So his external quest is to look after Frodo, is to guard Frodo. Gandalf's given him that quest, but then yeah, Elrond gives him that quest as well in Rivendell, the whole fellowship. But his main thing is, I, I'm going to look after Frodo. That's my job. But his in, internal journey the entire time is that he is the one true king of the entire human race and he is he's running away from that which is why he's in the woods that's why he's afraid so these two things come together and it makes the main conflict of you know would aragorn ever be would aragorn ever become king if frodo hadn't got the ring and he didn't have to protect him no so the external and the internal have to meet and they have a moment where you you have the moment where in the book the blade the the sword is like kind of that moment it happens really early on is that they reforge the sword that was broken the, the famous one that was used to belong to aragorn's ancestor um and when he gets that he becomes slowly more and more like royal and and kingly as the story goes on and uh by the end the whole fellowship are looking at him like wow this guy is like this guy's the man he's so cool and he looks they say how he looks taller he get he grows taller and taller like in their estimations every time they see him because he's just becoming he's his quest his external quest is making him overcome his internal struggle i think that's one of the main things that we look for in in all stories um and one of the main things that stories make us in in the mirror so to speak of the story make us uh sort of look at in ourselves um 
which I think is pretty cool. With regards to Frodo, though, do you not feel like his his internal struggle is that he's a weak, feeble nobody, and he has to be strong enough to fight with the the ring because him fighting the ring, the, uh, the power of the ring throughout the whole story is the thing where it's like he's the only one that's got the internal strength to do that. Nobody yes. else can can think it. So he he has got an internal struggle. Absolutely, it's not as obvious. Yeah, it's not as it's not as obvious, and especially in through the medium of film, I think visually it's quite hard to because you can't see in people's heads quite as easily in in film as you can in uh, in in the book. And I always, you know, was a fan enough of Frodo. I thought he, he was very very brave. Um, but there's a when he says in Rivendell, like, "I'll take the ring. I'll, I'm, I'll take it. I'll take the ring to Mordor." Although I do not know the way, and I love that. I think that's a great uh, sort of it embodies like the heroic archetype of like he doesn't know where he's going to go, but he will destroy it. He will destroy this evil. But even though he doesn't know where he's going, uh, he just knows that the quest will sort of take him there. Uh, I think that's See, cool. If we, if we try to show how important story is to us and what we do, yes. Um, I'm just going to have a look now. I can see when I go on the wide camera with you, on the right-hand side of the screen, for me, I can see the epiphany. And what I know that that is, is the epiphany yes. bridge questions, which is from Russell Brunson, which basically teaches you to tell a story in a certain format when you're doing a persuasive story. Uh, so we do integrate story into everything we do as a company um, because it's super, super important. But one of the, one of the big things, um, I, 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 and I did learn this from in the book, even though I, I hated reading it, uh, <laughs> was, um, make it emotional. Yes. Uh, you, empathy, play, play up because people like to empathize with a character. They like to empathize with a person. They like to feel for the like Rocky Balboa is a perfect example. The underdog story is probably the best people love. Um, in fact, I've got, got a story structure I use in almost anything, which I call my persuasive story structure. So I, I would say like, okay, so, so so the way we build a persuasive story is somebody wanted to achieve something, right? So for example, this fat guy wanted six pack abs. So he wanted to achieve this. He tried by doing this, which is the status quo, which is how everyone else is trying. He failed because of this, which is the status quo, which is how everybody else is failing. He almost gave up completely and was going to give up. And he's like, oh, I can't do it. I'm just going to be a fat guy forever. And then he discovered a new way, which he meets a guide or he meets you or he finds your product. He figures it out and it's like, okay, see, see, that's the way story follows in everything that we do. And then he's, he's like, okay, he figured out this, he found this new way. So he started doing it the new way that we teach. And then you show a picture of him with ripped six pack abs and he's like, yeah, I'm not a bad guy anymore. And <laughs> then it's like, if you want to do this to your life, take over. So that, that, that persuasive story structure does still focus on empathy. And it does focus on emotional, emotional triggers are the most powerful thing. And I think there's something like, 80 or 90 percent of people buy based on emotion secondly yeah. they buy based on logic so that so, so 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 the ones that don't just say i'm having it will then buy based on logic and then the final bit you can you can close people with urgency and scarcity it's not a sales thing this it's about stories i just you know i'm like i can't help it i love no. sales. stories and selling is like they're hugely connected uh but talking about the emotion there again i totally agree i think empathy is pretty much central is well fairly close to central when it comes to storytelling in general <clears throat> and also the role of stories in society and everything because uh, stories can make you uh, stories can make you feel a certain way about whole groups of people about lots and lots of different things i think 
recently in the um i think it probably started i know i think it's been going on throughout time stories can make um can make certain groups especially groups that are sort of on the outside of society they we can make them so we can bring them in with stories um by telling the by the stories telling the reader or viewer about the, the the benefits of these people or the you know or the hardship that they've been through for example there's currently a pretty bad immigration crisis um uh in calais and coming across to dover loads of people are in are in a bad spot there if you for example were to say you know 300 migrants crossed the channel today and ended up on on a beach in the uk that's not you know the lack of emotion there is not really telling the full story but if you tell a story about a child who's on a boat in the channel in terrible weather the weather's awful at the moment we just had 75 mile per hour winds down here so you can imagine how horrible that would be so then you've got a story from the child's perspective in the boat clinging on to his mother as the wave comes over the front of the boat and uh he can feel the grip slipping from his mother's hand and he loses yeah. her she never sees him again he's gone he's lost washed up on a beach that's that's it like that is heartbreaking so if you tell that story you're much more likely to get people come the next election to to vote sympathetically towards the uh immigration crisis yeah uh, yeah i mean because yeah if you say oh like there's 300 people stuck in in thingy in the homeless it's like all right okay next but you tell that little story there and i remember that whole story now you've just told from the whole thing i can picture this kid getting on this boat uh sneaking onto the boat and try and get out to the channel they're rowing away or however they get there and then i can imagine the bad weather coming the fear the cold how they're freezing and 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 that's that's the power of story it it does it's just just a story from an individual person's perspective because people can't I think, I think they say that you get about 11 million pieces of information every second or something stupid, but you can okay. only actually take in five or six, not five or six million, five or six pieces of that information. So, so your yeah. brain has to filter out all the shit that it doesn't want to pay attention to. So if you're talking about 300 people, you can't get into the minds of 300 people and understand that 300 people stood there and, and, and from all their different perspectives. But what you can do is you can look at it from the perspective of one. And then if you told one, two, or even three stories back to back, you'd probably remember all three stories and you'd probably never forget them. And it would change your physiology. I think that's the right word as a person to how you feel about that specific subject. Um, And if they did stuff like that, instead of everyone bitching and moaning about um, all the different shit that's going on in the world, like racism, sexism, and all the shit that needs sorting out, if they actually told stories more from individual perspectives, like they do in film, I think it would make a bigger difference. It's just, unfortunately, people who actually are in the news or in politics tend to just want to state the facts. Yes, and I think that... uh, Let's get controversial a second. I think that this is something that Hollywood, potentially, I think Hollywood, but all sort of film and media people are kind of missing because they've got that memo and they've gone yeah we need more let's say we we want to solve our goal is racism we want to solve the problem of racism so in their minds they've gone okay we need more uh we need more people of color in leading roles so we're going to let's say the this whole thing because it caused a scandal let's cast a black actor to play james bond or let's cast a black female actor to play a james bond-esque character 
Um, obviously, that causes a lot of controversy because people feel attached to the char character because, you know, mm -hmm. empathy, we've talked about this, we live in the character's skin. So it feels kind of strange to have that, uh, you know, that so much change about that character. What to do what we just said to put someone in the mind of of of, of someone who is a uh, probably from a uh, an ethnic minority or racial minority, would it not be smarter or or more effective at least to create a character that is uh, that is independently individual and an actual is actually a minority? in that role that's similar to James Bond, but not James Bond because James Bond is something else, but to give someone a story that actually communicates that rather than just being like, yeah, it's James Bond, but he's black. But why was... don't we have, why yeah. don't we have, there is a, a, uh, a spy, but the spy is African yeah, because... or the spy is a, is a Afro-Caribbean British man who is uh, the suspicion of him in day-to-day -day life, people crossing the road, uh, to get away from him because there's a stereotype um, that plays into his role as being a spy and why that either makes him a great spy or why that makes him a bad spy and that he needs to get over that and make that an actual problem rather than just, yeah, let's just, let's just change the person's ethnicity and just run the same stories because it's not achieving what they want to achieve. In fact, it might even be achieving something to the contrary. Yeah. No, they're doing it in schools at the minute, actually. So, so they're teaching the children now that you shouldn't recognize color. Everybody's the same, which, which I agree with. It's totally fine. But then in the news that everybody's saying, but you're not allowed to recognize color. You're not allowed to look at color. You're not allowed to look at sex. Everybody's the same. Uh, but we have to give more girls chances to play on the football team with the lads, even though they're nowhere near as good. And I don't care who, who you are telling me that a girl can play sports against a guy. They can't. Remember, we talked the other week. Um... We we spoke the other week that um about the guy in 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 the MMA world who had a sex change became a woman went mm. into the MMA world and kicked the fuck out of loads of women and they let him do it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But it's that, kind of it's the crazy. same thing. They're teaching schools to 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 you don't recognize color, you don't recognize sex. Everybody's the same. Um, but then they're saying also we need to give more females jobs in specific roles which they've never historically done or we need to make more blacks take over the roles of of, of whites in certain situations because so that what they're doing is they're saying you can't recognize color but then you you have to um and i think i i think it's i don't know i think it's all bollocks i think i think you shouldn't you shouldn't pay attention to women or men or anything but there are certain things that that women should do that that men shouldn't and there are certain things that men should do that women shouldn't because we're, we're not physically built for that i mean i'm assuming back in the day when we were all running around in fields the, the men went out and did the hunting and the women protected the kids. I could be wrong. Um, yeah, race is always tricky. It's probably one of them things we shouldn't really talk about. <laughs> yeah, but then, <laughs> that, that, that makes the situation worse is the problem. If people don't talk about this kind of stuff, then, yep. you know, then everyone's opinions are only ever spoken about in whisper. And then if you're just whispering about something, you can't have that open forum of discussion. And um, I think that that's what's happened bringing it back to, to Hollywood, I think that's kind of what's happened in that case is like, you know, well, you can't, you know, but we need, we need it to be like the highest grossing. What if nobody watches that movie about the, the Afro-Caribbean spy? What, what if nobody watches it? And then, you know, that's realistically, that's what it's all about. It's the is bottom line. It's kind of money, now? isn't it? Uh, no, I was being speculative. I don't know if there is oh, a new James Bond. Although I wouldn't have an issue with with uh, an actor like Idris like Elba as James Bond. I think he would be great. 
So but. something else I think people misunderstand, right, when it comes to story, and definitely in the presentation world, right, because I do a lot of sales presentations and a lot of promotions and a lot of things on, like from stage and things like that, a lot of selling, and a lot of people misconstrue, right? When, when people say to you, show, don't tell, right? Mm, yes. So a lot of people are like, okay, they take show, don't tell, right? Anyone who does presentations, this will be really helpful for them. They take show, don't tell to mean incorporate more pictures into your presentation and and people who who teach it right will say if you a picture tells a thousand words but it's completely wrong right when people when, when the guys right at the top of the tree uh, are explaining that you should show don't tell what they're trying to say to you to do is is actually show using specific language that builds a story in the viewer or in the reader or in the person's mind as opposed to saying show a picture instead of putting the words on the screen or instead of using actual physical words, what they're trying to say to you. And, 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 and they teach this to authors, but they don't teach this to presenters and they don't teach this to people that have the ability to use pictures instead. And what they're doing is they're using pictures the wrong way because what they should be doing is focusing heavily on words that enable you to f smell, see, touch feel or the five senses i forgot what they are but the five senses if you can target your writing around those five senses and put people into that position that's what they mean by show don't tell rather than just trying to describe all the stupid little details um totally. what do you think? i i uh, i agree i think that they could fix show don't tell by yep. just saying show us why don't tell us why i think that would make it easier because rather than just you know, because then you can't just use an image. For example, if you have a character, you're like, okay, well, I can't tell anyone that I can't just say he was sad. I have to show that he was sad. Yep. So he is crying this river of tears, like you said, making it real visual. Ah, oh, it's yep. terrible. The room is filling up with his tears. But um, what we what we want to know is why he's sad. Like that that is what we want to be shown. Um, yep. And um, yeah, rather than being told or hit over the head with this metaphor about drowning in his own tears. Um, yeah, and, and more like what you're talking about, somebody who's sad, like she noticed the tear roll down, down his cheek before he stooped his head and sat back into the couch and slumped. That kind of explains that somebody's sad and somebody's not happy and something rather than exp explaining the reason behind why that's kind of a show instead of telling um, type of thing. But I think, I think that was one of the, yeah. the keys that this book got right over most of the other things that I've read, because she's a brilliant writer when it comes to actually writing for herself, she understands the fundamentals of writing better than probably any book I've read. She just doesn't know how to tell a fucking story, which is ridiculous because she keeps going back to like, when would I have read a book like the wind in the willows or, or, or <laughs> shit like that? I think it was maybe gone with the wind, but wind, wind in the willows wind. also. <laughs> but when someone's telling me a story, right. That's, that's to do with gone with the wind. And she tells me a full chapter based around a story. And it's like, I'm not going to go and buy a fucking 1100 page book and read that. So I can understand your chapter. And then she'll tell me about die hard. Now, luckily I've seen the die hard movie, but if I hadn't seen the die hard movie, I'd also be in a situation. So, so I, I feel anyway, I'm not going to be yeah. on her as a writer anymore. She, she knows what she's talking about. But she can't tell a story from an original perspective in my Yes. Opinion. She had to use examples and I understand that, but you, what you said about it being an original perspective, I think is a, is a good idea. She did it sometimes, but she didn't do it early enough that um, what she says, obviously, when she talks about like chapter one, hooking the reader, that whole yeah. thing, it, it was, again, kind of ironic because chapter one, I was hooked by the cognitive thing. 
Um, and then the literary things, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's get back to more cognitive things. And then chapter two, you kind of get less cognitive things. It's less and less and less. And it's a, um, they say about talking about hooking the reader, dopamine is like, that's why, um, you know, that's one of the things that keeps us watching movies. One of the things that keeps us turning pages in books is that we're getting a constant stream of dopamine when our, we're asking, why is that happening? And then we're getting an answer. And uh, that, that constant sort of uh, the mystery, the unfolding, unraveling mystery is what's keeping us stuck to the book. Where did we read about the dopamine thing? Was, it, was that unpredictably irrational to do with the rats? Where basically what they did is they figured out how to block the dopamine res- yeah. something from a, from a rat, right? So rats are obviously ravages. They run around. They they fuck like crazy. They have loads of rat babies. They eat everything in sight. They'll eat through steel and everything. And but what they figured out is if they could block the dopamine receptors in the brain of a rat, it would stop eating. It would stop having sex. It would stop doing all the things it did, and it would literally just die. Showing that obviously sociopaths, to a certain extent, or whatever you call them, where people are like proper fucked in the head where they, they don't um where they're mental not mental but like where they're, they're, they're they they have no empathy and they can't right. feel yes so, so, so they struggle with dopamine then it means things that's in life are, are a lot more difficult for them to enjoy and they've got less motivation to actually do them than than people who have better dopamine receptors so the rats basically they, they the, the the dopamine was blocked so what happened is they stopped eating and they starved to death Mm. They still they, what they triggered the brain, and when they seen them eat it, the brain still had the same reaction to the sugar and the sweetness of what they were giving them. But because yeah. they had no dopamine anymore, they they basically couldn't be bothered. And yeah, doing they it, didn't make the choice. Amazing. Yeah, it stopped them from making choices, didn't it? It, it they didn't want to choose anything because they were like, meh, indifferent. Dopamine is just gone, so it's indifferent. Yeah, it's funny how our dopamine gets. Um, hijacked like uh, for example if you're reading a book and there's a a, a cliffhanger um, you have like a physical reaction to the cliffhanger or if you're watching a movie and it gets right to the end and then suddenly there's a cliffhanger people stand up <laughs> I, I notice it when you're like watching I watch with my family sometimes something happens people actually like rise out of their seats like no way how can you take that from me uh, and it's a real like you know but you have to be yeah. careful with it because you you can't just get to a a certain part of a, a story and then just cut it off, you know, like the most embarrassing moment of my life or whatever. I was, uh, I was about to walk into the room and then all these girls were looking at me. And then suddenly I just, I heard this voice calling over my shoulder and I turned around and, uh, yeah. And that was do, it. Do, do you know right, what you're saying now? <laughs> like, I'm a proper, it's horrible. I'm proper soppy, right. When it comes to stuff like that. Right. And, and so like, an example would be Sweet Home Alabama is one of the movies and um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Like These are proper cheesy movies, right? But my right. missus always takes the piss, right? Because what happens is at the end, they always get together, right? And my missus always looks for it with me and she's always like, why have you got a big grin on your face? So I'll be sat watching the film and I'll be actively smiling massively because they're getting together and I'm dead happy about it. But then I don't realize I'm doing it because I'm kind of that engrossed into the story. And then the other yeah. week, from, from a more negative perspective, I watched 65 at the cinemas with um, with my little lad, Cameron. I've written right. notes about 65. It's the last thing I watched in the cinema. Let's talk and about well, it. <laughs> they go through this... Um, so they get trapped underground and then they find this hole and they start going through this hole to try and escape through this little tiny skinny hole. And as, the, as they're trying to, to escape through this little skinny hole, um, it starts to look like it's going to crush them. 
and I physically felt sick in the cinemas. I was like, I wanted to leave because I was like, this is this is like I don't know what it was, but it made me it made me actively feel un horrible. It made me feel yeah. horrible. I was like, Shit, me too. I, I guess I'm claustrophobic. I must be without realizing it to a certain extent. And and I yeah. thought about them getting crushed in them. Uh, yeah, you were in the skin of the character. You'd like assimilated with the character, so you were actually feeling their emotions at the time. Um, yeah, it's crazy. The assimilation thing is is um, is is mad. They actually say apparently if you've read Harry Potter, you are more likely to. Um, they took groups of people, some that they made like a couple read a few chapters of Harry Potter, and um, a few they just asked the questionnaire, and um, the people that have read Harry Potter answered that they were more likely to move something with their mind. They believed they were more likely to move something with their mind could do it. than someone who hadn't read Harry Potter at all. And they did the same thing with Twilight, and they asked them, uh, are your canine teeth longer than average? And the people who'd read Twilight were more likely to say that their canine teeth, Twilight's about vampires if you haven't seen it, um, their canine teeth were longer than average because they'd watched it. So they'd almost assimilated with the character and were still even after reading the pages, uh, believing that about themselves, which I think is crazy. So that's how powerful story is, isn't it? It's so powerful. And I think it does come down to emotion and dopamine as well. And back to dopamine, like hijacking dopamine is something that I think from a sales perspective, people do like all the time with, um, with uh, products, especially games. I don't know if you've ever have any experience with like mobile games um, or computer games. I don't know if you're, a big game no, I, I used to run because I couldn't but... couldn't get I couldn't put them down. I stopped playing them because I like I I, I think exactly. Final Fantasy Seven was the first one I completed, and it took me about five or six weeks spending like ten hours a day in front of a computer. And I was like, you know what, this is not good for me because when you get to the end, I feel this 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 like a loss. It's like okay, you get there, and 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 it's kind of an anti climax when you complete a game because it's yeah. over and it's it's part of your life. It's like when you finish a Netflix series that you really like. And you watch the whole thing and it's like, shit, it's over. Yeah. It's like, and it's been a feeling of loss. Yeah. And it's been plying you with this dopamine the whole time. And then when it's gone, it's not there. There's this uh, weird phenomenon in gaming at the moment. Um, it's like RPG games, so like role playing games. Um, so stuff like uh, m mostly like ones that are online. So MMORPGs. So stuff like World of Warcraft, which I played before, and um, like Guild Wars and all of these games where you create your character and you can make it look like you if you want and then you have it in a in a massive open world and you can play with your friends etc but in China they were like MMA, MMOs are huge like they're massive they make loads of money they can they have really good in-app like in-game purchases and stuff like that so they were like what keeps people playing these games how do we get people to keep interacting and I noticed that like the longer I played these games as they evolved over time, because they're an ever evolving world, you'd have more little boxes to click on, like, oh, level up. You get like a box pops up, pops up with level up. There's a satisfying noise, a nice little, like uh, a nice little celebratory spark or firework, and then level up. Oh, brilliant. Oh, a box. Oh, inside the box, I get treasure. Awesome. So you click on the little treasure, you get that. Nice. I get free stuff. That's brilliant. And then, uh, then it, you know, happens every now and again, you get more, more and more stuff and it's good. It's progression. That's what the game's there for. However, these Chinese, uh, like they kind of like mimics, uh, in that, an, in an RPG game, the story is really important because you have to feel immersed in the world. The world is very important to being into in the game. Um, but 
what they did was they were like, you know what? Maybe we don't need the dopamine from the story. Maybe we can just give them the dopamine from opening these boxes. And there are like hilarious videos of people signing into these games and they get literally like 50 pop-ups on their screen. Like, congratulations, you've won these potions and you've won this and well, skill up, level up. And you're just like, oh. the whole game is like basically you closing boxes and getting these rewards um, because they think that that well because the idea is the more you get the more the more, the more you little rewards you, you get the more it keeps you on and they've replaced the story just by there's not even any gameplay in some of them you're literally walking around just getting hit with pop-ups and then uh when you've closed all of them it's like great if you want more you've got to spend like 50 dollars. and you're like ah. <laughs> i remember reading a book when i was a kid and the book was uh, it was a book where you could read. You read the first few pages, and then you have to make a choice. And then, and yes. I think this is where this all choose started. your own adventure. Yeah. So you, yeah, you you think it, and it's like, right? Do you want to do this, this, or this? And if you do this, you turn to page ten. You do this, you turn to page twelve. You do this, you turn to page four, fifteen, or whatever it is. Then you'd read another couple of pages, and then it'd give you a choice. So the book was kind of written in into three or four or five different storylines, depending on which way you went with it. And it was like, it was brilliant. And at the time it was like, they weren't. And I, I guess that's where that game idea came from as you being involved in the game where you can make your own decisions. I know now it's like miles ahead of it, but then like you just said, and then at the end, it's like, okay, if you want to carry on with this, you, had to, you have to pay more money. That's kind of like a sales funnel, which is what a lot of um, dodgy marketers do is they sell you a product that's got half of the um half of what you, is necessary missing so you'll go yeah. and spend like they'll say oh 27 dollars and you can purchase this and it's like it's stupidly low seems too cheap to be uh like they can't really make any money off the back of it how can they convert but then as soon as you purchase it it's like right now pay 57 dollars and you can also use this this and this section it's like well it's fucking useless without that section i expected that to be included and then as soon as you buy that it's like right now it's another 97 dollars for this and, and kind of what they're doing is they hook them for a very, very low amount. And then it's like, there's an upsell for this bit and an upsell for this bit. And you end up spending three or $400 before you even realize it. And then you're, then you're, at, and then you're at the point where you're like, do you know what? I never would have bought it for $400 right out of the bucket, but because they're doing it in, in little steps. And each time you purchase, you get that. Um, you go into what's called a buying frenzy. Mm -hmm. As soon as you, as soon as you open your wallet and you spend money, you then it's a lot easier to get you to buy again and again and again and again. And a lot of markets have figured out that if they take a product that's complete and break it down into five different sections <laughs> and then only give you little bits at a time, they can actually get way more money out of you than, than because it's a lot harder for them to say, all right, give me $400 and you get everything that you need. Yeah. I remember there was a, um, one of the star Wars games came out and it had like, it was like a 50, 60 quid game just out of the box. And then when you got in, it would take you like 200 hours of playing for free to unlock like Darth Vader or something to play as in the game. But it, if you paid extra, you could get him in like five, six Revival hours of gameplay. Or yeah, basically. yeah. And yeah. everyone was furious. They actually had to take it down because it was so bad. Um, but what you were saying about breaking it up into little pieces and making it, um, and you know, like spreading them out so people just go into that buying frenzy, it's kind of like pacing in a book, isn't it? Like I know you've, um, written a few books short chapters i think are brilliant to make anything into a page turner because you're getting those little reward boxes um like we were talking about um like from the games you're getting those little reward boxes in the form of chapters your, your progress is constantly getting uh getting shown to you as a, as a little reward um she does actually mention that in this book she does say make it predictable and she says if it can go wrong 
then you should make it go wrong. But I don't think she does like so. So so I, I can't remember what it says on the front of the book, but it's all about brain science and things like that. So she says make yes. it predictable, and if it can go wrong, then let it go wrong. But what she doesn't touch on is that people get small little bits of satisfaction from being able to predict what's going to happen next in the story. You've always heard, like, you know, when you sat watching a film with somebody and they say to you, um, this is going to happen next. Or do you think this is, or who do you think the killer is? And yes. for those who can actually guess who the killer is, okay, sometimes there's a big twist. And I think she uses Indiana Jones in the film as, as, as an example. If you're not seeing Indiana Jones, he gets in front of this ninja guy with a sword who's spinning his sword around. He's going to chop Indiana Jones up and you expect him to get into a sword fight and he just pulls out his gun and shoots him in the head and bang, it's like, yes. okay, done. Like a complete, that's unpredictable. And yes, it's that's and like it makes everyone laugh. It takes you out of the predict the predictability, but the predictability side of things. If you do a lot of things that are predictable, and then if it can go wrong, make it go wrong. People like to guess. Oh, I reckon this is going to happen. I reckon, and when they do, they're happy and they want to read more because it's like, oh, I guessed that, and I get, thought that was right. And it's the same as games writing story that is predictable, where people can can guess what's going to happen next, and then every now and again you drag them out of the predictability where it's something that's completely shocking. Like the Indiana Jones example, it's like, shit, I didn't expect that. Yes. Uh, or shit, I didn't expect that guy to be the killer in this film. I thought it was the other team of bad people. Right. Type of thing. But you do have to be careful with that though, because there is always the chance that, um, uh, I refer to that as subverting expectations. So you think ex expectation is going to happen. You subvert it by Indiana Jones doesn't pull out his gun, uh, doesn't pull out his whip or, just put his dukes up to fight this ninja. He just pulls out his gun and shoots him. That's a subversion of expectations. Important because narratively, not that important of a moment. Cool on-screen set piece, the little yeah. chase scene and stuff. Interesting sort of conclusion to the set piece. It was quite funny, but it's not. They're not narratively and like the internal and external journey isn't really affected by that. And I think that there, if you subvert expectation, uh too wildly with uh, main characters, especially and important story events, you can really mess up. So with the murder mystery example, oh my God, I couldn't believe it's, it was the janitor the whole time. But if the janitor was only in one scene at the beginning and did absolutely nothing to set up that it might yeah. be the janitor and there was nothing throughout, you know, there's no like, they found a Hoover bag <laughs> at the scene of the crime and stuff like that. You know, there's no setup for the janitor at all. Then, that oh my god i had no idea it was him turns into like oh my god what a joke like they literally just yes the 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 writer didn't know who did the murder until the last page but that's what that looks like um and uh so if you're going to do something like that with your writing you sort of have to earn it by putting in little setups the whole way through um and yeah and then join those dots up in and then create the the whatever it is there was an example in i think an example of it going horribly wrong was probably in the final series of game of thrones i don't know if you got into game of thrones uh, i've not watched the final once but you can you can spoil oh big spoilers coming, coming in yeah the... four, i think and then i got okay those were the best four i like to cram so so and i was gutted when they killed um what's that english actor called that's got oh what's his name he, he plays the main king at the beginning Oh, um, Robert Baratheon, the guy who played. Robert, who, who's the guy who plays the, him? The big fat king. I can't remember no, his name. No, not the big fat king. The the, the, the other oh. king. I don't know if he's the king or if he's he's. But he's got he's, he's fat. They chop his head off. Oh, uh, Ned Stark. 
Him. Sean I'm Bean. Good. Yeah, Sean Bean. I like him as an actor. So I was... Yeah, he's great. Why did you kill him? I was gutted when yeah. you killed him. And then I watched the next three, but then it, then it hadn't been released yet. The, the fifth uh-huh. one. And once that happens, I forget everything that's happened. So I like to watch everything back to back throughout the whole thing. Not Talk about the next series to come out because it just does me in. I'm not one of them who'd watch uh, Coronation Street once a week and things like that, like some people do. And I'm like, fuck that shit. I'll forget what's happened last no, week. I've got too much going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really good example of them subverting expectation is that you don't think that they're going to actually kill him. Like, no, there's no way they're going to actually kill him. And then you, the whole time you're watching that execution scene, you're like, oh, there's an, that you think that when they're swinging the sword, you're, you're like, someone's going to like get in there. You think like someone's going to like Aya, his daughter is watching in the crowd and you're like, oh, you know, is she going to make a scene and distract them and he's going to get away or something's going to happen? Nope. They, nope. they, they did it in, in um, they did it in what was that one with all the zombies called? Um, uh, wait, the what Walking are you talking Dead, about? Living... The Walking Dead, yeah, The Walking Dead. Was it The Walking yeah. Dead where there was that 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 guy? Uh, I can't remember his name, but his son was in it as well. And then they did a bit in there where where it's like you don't expect him to kill his son. Then they shot him in the eye. But then he survived, and it's like that's never going to fucking happen. Yeah, uh, it. But then in one of the seasons, um, the bad guy, I think he was called Negan. Yes, battered. Um, he was one of my favorite uh, characters. Was Glenn? Glenn. Yeah, they killed him, and I was like, no, you can't kill Glenn. Glenn. And I stopped yeah. watching it after that. I was like, you've killed Glenn. He was one of my best characters in the whole <laughs> thing. And it's like sometimes yeah. you can lose a lot of people by doing something crazy like that. And it's the same in a book. You could you could be reading and you, and you feel a connection to that one particular character, and then all of a sudden, the killer that that character dies, or that character yeah. becomes somebody you don't think they were. So you find out, okay, yes, this character is actually an evil, sick, twisted sicko, and and I don't like him anymore. But I thought he was a dead nice guy all the way through, and it's like I'm not going to finish this. I can't. I, I, I'll throw it to one side. It's brilliant if they've earned it. It's amazing if they've earned it and they pull it off and people are like, oh, he's actually a bad guy. Like character arcs are fantastic when they're pulled off brilliantly. Like Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister, everyone hated him. He was like the most annoying, Prince Charming looking prick. Everyone wanted to kill him. And then, you know, it goes on and like he ends up getting captured and tortured. And you're like, yes, that's great. Couldn't happen to a couldn't happen to a better guy, that asshole. And then uh he's slowly, as he's on his arc of being captured and tortured and going through all these mangled things the hero the hero's journey he um you think he's a hero to begin he thinks he's a hero to begin with but he's not he needs to go through this journey he gets his sword hand cut off so he can't fight anymore um and um he ends up being a good guy we have uh, to do the hero's journey on here we have to do either hero of a thousand face i know it's a massive book or or which is the other one i've got them all i've read them all but just to go through them would be would be absolutely awesome. Yeah, um, Hero with a Thousand Faces is next to my bed. I haven't had a chance to read it because I've been uh, getting these done. But I would destroy that book if I had a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? The, 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 when you understand character, the, the the internal and the external, and and the, and the whole arc. I mean, we're doing this podcast, and I hope people enjoy it and it helps them. But we're doing it for selfish reasons, really, because everything that we're learning is designed to 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 help us in our own careers move forward we're actually edge because i would never write i got i read it on um on on a what you call it one of these things like this but not this one i write read it on um 
the app, the, the Amazon, whatever you call it, okay. tablets, like a Kindle. read it that way. And yeah. I got to 18% of the book. So it said 18% of the book. And, and, and I actually physically thought to myself, this is torture for me. I hate the way she writes. There's no stories. There's no examples. But I knew I had to finish the whole story. And then some of the stuff you've just been talking about then, about setting things up and things, I'd learned that stuff from this book. But I would never have finished this book if we weren't doing this podcast. I'd have got that way through, and I, I probably would have thrown it in the bin <laughs> yeah. at that point. But there's a lot of in- stuff. Like things she says about um, use patterns. Now, in, in, in sales, with a sales presentation, for example, I was I was on a webinar last night, and I did a two-hour presentation, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the key things, it was a guy called John Childers a few years ago. Not many people know who he is, right? But he was absolutely brilliant. He was, he, he was one of the most expensive um sales teach training teachers um in, in america and he used to go around he used to teach people to create these sales presentation and he used to say to them at the beginning he used to say create a line right he says what's the what's the main section of your presentation what's the most important part of your presentation and people would say oh it was the beginning of this or it's, it's getting them to understand and he's like no it's not it's the pitch right the most so, so if you start a sales presentation and, and, and you've only got time to do the close, then you only do the close. And everything else is, is optional. He said, and, th- and then he said, right, so, so, so you create this thing with an arrow on either end, and that's the beginning, and that's the end of your timeline. So say you've got 90 minutes or two hours for a presentation. You create the close. Okay, so that's going to take up 30 minutes at the end, let's say, for example. He said, and then what you do next is you put in three sections, right? And this is what she was saying about this patterns. He says, section number one is tell them. Section number two is tell them what you've told them. And then section number three is give them a summary of what you've told them. So the three sections to a presentation, the three main sections, like there's loads of different sections to put in there and loads of things that's going to use uh, people's minds and convert and everything else. But the, the key to it is tell them, tell them what you told them, tell them again. Because what what people do when they, when they hear something um, is they, they hear it the first time and they question it. They hear it the second time, even if it's 30 minutes later, and in the back of their head, they've heard it before somewhere. Yeah. And then the third time they hear it, they're agreeing with it. They're nodding their head like, yeah, I know that. But they do it, because you do it in a 90-minute presentation, you're in a situation where the first time they hear it, they're questioning it. The second time they hear it, they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third time they hear it, they're kind of agreeing with you and nodding their head. It's like, yeah, I knew that. And they're, they're, they're moving along. And, and it's kind of the same in a book. If you follow those specific patterns and you make things repetitive, people will question yeah. it the first time they hear it. But the second, that's why things like scream, right, which is a shit franchise, right? My missus loves them, right? She drives yeah. me to the cinema right? every time a new one comes out and I sit there. I mean, the last one I fell asleep in the cinema and she slapped me for swear, for snoring. So, <laughs> so like, but I, I hate them. I think they're terrible. But what's happened is they've, they've done that repetitive story structure so well that you expect this, you expect this, you expect this. When it happens, you're like, yes, I guessed it. Yes, I got it. Yes, I know yes. what's going to next. And it gives them that, 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 that dopamine effect. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it keeps them on. It's uh, um, the talking about the expectations and stuff. Have you heard of uh, Chekhov's gun? I don't know if they mention it in the um, in the book. Actually, I was reading it, and the whole way through, I was like, "When's she going to mention Chekhov's gun?" Um, but it's Chekhov was a playwright, a Russian playwright, and he said that if you mount a, I can't remember the type of gun, but essentially, if you mount a pistol on the wall of the scene in the the first act so the first scene the two people are talking totally unrelated there's a pistol on the wall yep you better fire that pistol in the third act 
Okay, I did read that bit. I just didn't know it was called Chekhov's gun. I don't yeah. um I don't pay attention to names and things. I remember everything in story format. So if you tell me something, <laughs> I'll turn it into a story in my head and that's how I memorize things because I've figured out that I'm not intelligent enough to remember facts and figures and stats and names like you you reel off these names and I'm like I've never <laughs> heard that name before, but I remember the principle behind it. Yeah. So I can fit in as many concepts as possible into my mind because I know I can't fit the facts and stuff. So I just understand the concept. And I, I kind of, when I read something, I stop for a second and I'll be like, right, how does that fit into X? And then I'll remember the concept and I'll remember the thing. And it is, yeah, it's like you said, if, um, I can't remember what the example in the book was, but it was, it was something to do with if you have somebody who does something specific and then they, that's got nothing to do with the rest of the story, then cut it out because... Everything yeah. needs to be, um, let me see if I've got it on my notes because I have actually got some notes over here. Yeah, use use patterns, repeat crucial information, uh, create cues and make them obvious they will be used later. No, not that one. I, I haven't got it in my notes, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But basically, like, you have to... It's just all about setting things up, really, isn't it? Like um, the okay, an example I found was uh, I don't know, I don't think they use this one in the book because it's a fairly recent movie, and I thought it was a terrible movie, and it's a terrible example, which is was a good example of it being used terribly. Is that um, uh, it's called Snow White and the Huntsman? It's like I think it's Liam Hemsworth, I think, um, who it. plays Thor, and I can't remember who plays Snow White. Not sure. But it's uh, it's like a retelling of the Snow White story. It's supposed to be like gritty and dark or whatever. So Liam is Chris's brother, and he plays Thor in a different movie. Oh, sorry, Chris Hemsworth. I get them confused because they're brothers. Okay, my bad. Um, yeah, sorry. So Snow White and the Huntsman, and they're the Huntsman and Snow White. He's just rescued her. They're walking through the woods, and then suddenly he just turns to her, and he shows her. This random, this unprompted, and it was really weird. I guess there was supposed to be some kind of like ambush scene or something, and they didn't have the budget or they wanted to cut it out or it was too gory or whatever. But he shows her this weird move where if you block a sword strike to the to the head, you, you can stab the person in the body with a with a hidden knife. And he just randomly shows her it's really not earned the moment. I remember it being jarring, being like, why did that just happen? That's so random. Um, and it's not mentioned or talked about or used all the way through until the last set piece where Snow White is fighting the evil queen, which they left out of the fairy tale, the sword fight at the end of Snow White. Um, and she blocks the evil queen's sword and stabs her in the... So he just does, shows it randomly rather move. than her saying, will you teach me to, to, to fight? And then he shows right, her or, various moves. Yeah, or she like attacks him and he like goes to do it to her because he thinks that she's like a bandit or something i don't know like they could have just actually earned that but they didn't earn it at all <laughs> it was like a chekhov's gun moment but just not a very good one um, what else have we taken from the book that was good um i think there was i mean the last chapter is brilliant um i was going to mention though on the topic of sort of like sort of like following the dots and stuff and, and and uh that element they have a whole chapter about foreshadowing and flashbacks and subplots and stuff and i think that's uh that was quite an interesting chapter and and it you see it all the time in in stories go, go on sorry do you know where you can break the rules 
Go on. You can break every single rule in comedy. Adam Sandler's been doing it forever. Yeah. You can break every single rule. You can you can put random shit on the wall that makes no sense to the story that's not going to be used, that's not going to be part of it. You can you can have characters that makes no sense to what they're going to do or not going to do. Adam Sandler's been doing it for fucking years and he's made hundreds of millions off the back of actually story structures and story scripts that don't follow any of the rules, but because they're funny and they make you laugh and they give you that dopamine, you get away with it. Yeah, I think comedy is one of those, you're right, you can sort of bend the rules for that. Uh, break them and completely with that well, that's mean, like the like I, what you said about the indiana jones thing when he shoots him it's funny so you get away with it but if it was a really serious movie and that was a really serious moment you'd be like oh man like i was looking forward to that or there's no way he'd be able to do that that's you know yeah if he'd never if he didn't even have a gun on his side in the scene before and then suddenly he's got a gun like come on <laughs> that would be yeah. annoying so yeah, in I comedy you can kind night, of twist I was, it i was watching it um it's called Lethal Weapon, um, okay. and it's a TV series. And I started watching it yesterday, day before. Um, and I, I think about the third or fourth one in, he's he's sat having a meal with his missus. They've not been out to go out for dinner for ages, and they're thinking. And as he walks away from the table, I think I thought he's left his phone. Right, I don't know why it came into my head. I thought he's left his phone. Then he looks back at the table to his wife, and the phone's not on the table anymore. And I thought, oh, they've cocked up uh, there, haven't they? Um, no way. And when you yeah, because that could, that that yeah. could be a big moment in the you know if he goes to the bathroom and then suddenly something happens and he wants to call his wife and then he can't because he's left his phone on the table or or maybe the phone starts to ring and it's a it's another woman and the wife gets jealous and it ruins their relationship like that's a really big deal well i my missy spots them all the time i never spot them so let's let's i didn't think this one would last as long as the others um i think i'm looking at a few things here create cues make it obvious that they will, will be used later well that's something that i've got on my notes there Follow patterns and then break them to shock people. But obviously, like you said, make sure it's not fundamental to the story. Uh, practice, practice, and practice some more. I mean, when I first wanted to write a book, I, I, I've i explained to you, I, I left school at 14. My head teacher said to me, if you ever feel like you're in a bad mood, you don't need to come to school anymore. So I was like, all right, see you later, sir. I'm never coming back. And my mum's like, what are you saying that to him for? He won't come back. And I never did. Uh, because I, it bored me to death, almost to tears. I couldn't stand school. However, um, it was... It was something that when I decided I wanted to be a writer and I knew nothing about English and I couldn't spell, um, I remember writing a letter because the UK and the US spell check differently, like a check that you would, checks don't exist anymore. But, And I remember writing a letter to say to a client when I started working at HSBC, please find and close your check, C-H-E-C-K, in the sum of X, Y, Z. But luckily one of the girls there called Janine used to... Um, used to check my letters for me because you didn't have all the fancy spell checks and things that you've got nowadays. And she started laughing and she's like, look at what you've done. And I was like, what have I done? And she's like, do you, and, and she's like, do you not know how to even spell check? And I was like, that is how you spell check in it, C-H-E-C-K. And she's like, no, 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 it's got a Q-U-E on the end. And I was like, no shit, I didn't even know that. <laughs> I didn't know, like until until I was in my 30s, I didn't know they with with a little line at the top and then R-E is they are. Um, and then their D-H-E-I, I, all that shit was kind of, I didn't know it. Because I never yeah. went to school when I was younger, and I never think you took so. So everything that I've, I've kind of learned over the years has been has been very very difficult. But what I found is when I wanted to write a book, I basically said to myself, "Right, I want to be a writer. I like the idea of being a writer, um, but I can't write. I can't spell. I've got no education. So what am I going to do?" So I decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to write every single day. I'm just going to write a story, and I'm going to work on it every single day. And that was kind of what I did. 
I just focused. The first one that I've got has nothing to do with it, like it was a thriller, uh, mm-hmm. but there was no character arc. There was no story. I didn't know, even know that stuff existed. I just thought, I like serial killers, so I'm going to write a book about a serial killer, and I'm going to make it sick as fuck, because the sicker it is, the more people's going to want to read it. And that was it, and that was kind of the, the strategy behind it. Um, okay. And I knew that you had to include the killer in the story without people knowing who it was. So I, I did something really cheesy where... Um, he was a, he was a head teacher. No, he was a teacher at school. I think he was a head teacher. I can't remember properly. And everybody used to refer to him as Mr. Capel, right? Mm-hmm. So throughout the story, he was referred to as Mr. Capel. Just ruined the whole book. Um, and then, uh, but people who was in his real life, so women that he met and people that he murdered and things like that, would refer to him by his first name. Aha. Uh-huh. Because he was a school teacher at school, he was called Mr. Capel, and the rest, of, I think he wasn't the killer actually. There was another guy, Mr. Summit, was the head teacher, I think. Can't ah, so Mr. Capel was a red herring. Mr. Capel was a teacher, and they used to refer to him as Mr. Capel. They actually arrested him inside the book, and all the rest of that crap and ruined his life. Um, and then there was another guy in there. It was Mr. Something. I can't remember his name, but it was it was one of the teachers who was the killer. But at school, he was always referred to as Mr. And then when okay. they were out killing people and they were in the real life, they were referred to as thingy. So it wasn't a day job. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until yeah. it got to the point where he knocked on his girlfriend's door and he was about to kill her because he'd murdered loads of people throughout the thing that she turned around and she, she noticed that whatever his name was, was standing in front of her. Um, and I said his full name from start to finish. And it was at that point where people would have gone, Oh shit. So Mr. Ah, such and such same was person. the guy that's been getting referred to as the first name throughout the book who you really liked the character. Um, I thought it was terrible so, that book. So it was, it was what? Way too gory. What inspired you to write that book? If you weren't, you know, if you couldn't write properly, you couldn't read. Oh, I would assume, but I that well. To. So I just wanted yeah. to, so I did it. And people, and, and I speak to people like yourself, who, who you said to me a few weeks back, like shit. But 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 I'm I'm scared that what people might think. I've never give a shit what people think, right? So I'm at the point where, because because growing up, we we like we lived in houses that didn't have carpets, that didn't have curtains, that had no wallpaper. Like the council, when you move into a premises, right, will rip out all the carpets and everything for you to move in so that you can. But when you can't afford to decorate the property and, you, and you've got no money and your mum's like, right, I've got 20 quid, I'm going to go and get a tenner's weed and some fags rather than <laughs> saying, do you know what I'm going to spend it on? on carpet or I'm gonna spend it on food or I'm gonna spend it on, on something like that. So so you when you're brought up in that situation, you learn to be, okay, you're the scruffiest family on the estate, so you can't give a flying fuck what anyone thinks. So whenever I wanted to do anything in life, it was kinda of, it's kind of a positive, it's a good thing that, that happened because yes. now later in life I don't care what anyone thinks. I've never given a shit. I've always realized that when when you when you write down at the bottom of the barrel and people look at you like scum, you you you're actually it gives you this thing that people who have always had to fit in and I've always been a member that 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 you don't you're not you're not tied into those same lim- limiting it's freeing. Yes, it's freeing. Yeah. So when I wanted to write a book, I was just like, I'm gonna fucking write a book and I'm gonna release it and I'm gonna figure it out. And then I've done that with everything. So even now when I want to do something, I'll just say, right, I'm gonna do this. And people are like, hey, but you don't know anything about XYZ. And I'm like, I don't give a shit, I'll figure it out. Yeah. I might feel, I might not. Funny. People might laugh at me, they might think I'm an idiot, but so fucking what? That's how we are categorically opposites in that in that uh in yeah, that but way. changing your that's why you've agreed. Right, yeah, it's something I it's something that I need to work on. And funnily enough, you're saying about that freeing thing, I think that's really uh that really relates to the story. Um especially um we won't go into it too deep because I we should really should write about uh sorry, do a podcast on um the hero with a thousand faces. But yeah. um the hero when they're the when they're an innocent child 
often they are an orphan. They have no parents or, you know, their parents like are a king or queen, but they're not near them. They're away from them. They're like the prince that was promised kind of character. So that freedom, the narrative freedom that it gives you to not have that kind of um, controlling influence on, on the main character, because like, you know, the main character is not going to, it's not going to want to go and slay the dragon. If it's got his, if his mom's like, you know, no, you don't have to go. It's fine. And his dad's like, no, you don't need to slay a dragon. You do you just stay with me and I don't know, bake bread or something. He's not going to go and do it because he doesn't feel like he needs to. But if he doesn't have that influence, loneliness. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, being an outsider as well. I think that's another really, because you need to see through the eyes of a protagonist and it's quite a, an outsider or a lonely person. There's a stereotype that they have a different kind of perspective on people an outside perspective on people i think that can help with when you're writing there's, to there's an empathy for them isn't there because you're like everybody in the, in the world or, or everybody seems to have a normal house with because growing up i hated people i didn't hate them but i was jealous of people who had who'd go home and and, and it's like well i'll get home tonight i've got my tea it's going to be waiting on the table for me to eat my dinner and then yeah. my dad's going to take me to cratty or my mum's going to take me to swimming or and it's like i'd get home and it's like if there's any food in the cupboard you'd eat it and and it was a case of um there'd be people getting pissed in the house drinking beer and smoking weed and it was just like if you wanted to dress smart for school you had to iron your own stuff and deal with it and it was a completely different we even even from people on the council estate we was different to a point where it was like so that that yeah i, I get that character thing but most people use that as an excuse to do bad in life yeah to go out and, and, and do terrible and never be successful and never thinking but you can use you can use that and that's kind of what is in a lot of stories is the person starts off with a with a, with a bad background where you'd expect them to do nothing with their life to go nowhere. Rocky was a great example. Yeah, he was just a bum. He was in his thirties already. He was probably too old to become a boxer and blah 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 blah. And then and, and he came through it all through through um, and and became obviously the world champion and, and and a completely different character. So so people use that that underdog story. I think is the most powerful story structure. It ever yeah i don't think there's anything beats it I, th I think it's it's the best and that's why all of the biggest like like we were saying earlier harry potter and things like that they all come from an underdog story it's not somebody who oh he's the most gifted and he's the best athlete and he's the best looking and he's got all this like this, this guy lives in a cupboard under the stairs his parents are dead and he's he's nobody yes. his family hate him and they treat him like a slave and and then he becomes the greatest little magician of all time yeah, we we love those stories. We love them in 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 not just in literary work, just in life in general as well. I think that's one thing that draws people to sport so much. Yeah, I think is that that it has that kind of. There's an always you know an underdog story is amazing in sport, but you often have evenly matched teams. But there's always like little stories happening inside of sport over and over again. It's it's uh, it replicates life in a way doesn't it like sport just replicates conflict so M mma and boxing and i don't think the they, they play on it enough right but mma and boxing nearly every single fighter has an underdog story and if they figured out how to tell stories properly and and use their history and actually promote their 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 story about them personally they would be way more successful. They'd be a lot more popular. They'd make a hell of a lot more money. But I don't think people learn to 
take advantage of their underdog story because everybody's got an underdog story. They all take it for granted, but everybody's got an underdog story in boxing and in MMA and in things like that. And and especially the guys who rise through the ranks, but because everyone's got one, they, they don't see the importance of it. But the, the thing we're to do with fighting is, is everybody's got an underdog story, but nobody's using it. Yeah. So if you was to start, if, if, if a specific fighter was to start using theirs and talking about it and going through it and actually making themselves more popular, making people have empathy for them because of that and and tell the story correctly, they could end up like Conor McGregor was, was he transcended the sport of, of MMA. Um, he didn't use an underdog story, but he knew how to get people engaged. He knew how to tell stories. He knew how to provoke people. Uh, but the, the, there's so many guys in there that have got these these yeah nothing stories and the, and they've come from and, and all they ever say is yeah well growing up I lived in a thingy and I slept in my car and I slept in the gym and that's about all we tell you but if that story was elaborated on a lot of yeah. fighters have an underdog story that they can benefit from part, yeah part of me thinks that maybe that's because they're always around people that have you know fighters are around fighters a lot and if all fighters have an underdog story then maybe they don't that's where they're like why they don't value it as much because don't they don't want to be like yeah and they don't want to be a lot of them as well especially in the ufc you've got people like you know yeah yeah i grew up in a really rough background or whatever my dad my dad was a bastard he did xyz but then you've got people from like the favelas in brazil and it's just like yeah my brother was like shot dead in front of me when i was nine years old and this stuff you're like jesus christ yeah. and maybe they're uh maybe they're a bit reluctant to to get into a, an underdog kind of match with it. But I, I think um, the story as well, not just necessarily a personal story in the uh, boxing or UFCs, also the story of the the conflict between the two parties is really interesting. Like um, recently, uh, Israel Adesanya um, was like, that fight had an amazing story. It was so I jumped good. Up. When he knocked him out, I jumped up and I was like, yes! I was like, that happened. Right. Because I felt so bad for him because I thought, you know what? He is the best fighter on the planet. He's the most skillful. He's batted him in every single uh, thing. The first fight he should have won. I don't know if you ever watched it. The yeah, second yeah, fight, it was, that guy's just got hands of stone. And, and if he hits somebody, he knocks him out. I mean, I, I yeah. realized that when he knocked out he was number four Sean in the Strickland. World. Sean Strickland, when he knocked him out, I was like, holy... Cleaned shit. out Sean Strickland. And that guy's got a granite chin. So, yeah, that's a really... Yeah, that was a pretty shocking. When that happened, I was like, okay, this guy's probably going to fight for a title and he might be a bit dangerous. And yeah... Robert Whitaker will kick his head in. Yeah, I think so too. Robert Whitaker's too skilled, I think. If he stays but, in the middleweight, Robert Whitaker will batter him. He will beat the shit out of him. He'll take him down and he'll batter him. But I think he's going to go up to uh, light heavyweight... Yeah, he is. But um, the about the the story element, the story with him and uh, with him and Adesanya being such a, um, you know, like they've had so many fights in the past, and uh, there's like loads of history there. There's also the like just the little things, like how they present themselves as characters. Like, um, do you know his history? Well, he was. He's. I know he's from. I know he's from Brazil. I know he's from a very rough part of Brazil, right? Uh, and I think he had a bad drinking problem. I know he didn't start alcoholic. MMA until he was like 20-something. Yeah, he's, he's an alcoholic and all that. He's a bad alcoholic. And and, and for him to be the way he is now is is crazy. But yeah, this is all I've been told. I've not actually read into it properly, but I've been told that he was a bad alcoholic, serious drinking problem, and he was just considered a piece of shit. Um, and 
he fought through every that, that underdog story is brilliant that's like rocky yeah. even better yeah, than rocky because he was an alcoholic drunk it was like <laughs> you but, expect even less from him yeah but it's really hard to weave that story in with the story of him which the story the ufc told of him which is he is a killer he is this absolutely he's a force of nature like the hands of stone element like he will absolutely clean you out you got to be so careful around him the the headdress the war paint the drawing the bow back and screaming like all of that imagery is so macho that being like yeah i had a real problem and like i i you know like i was killing myself with alcohol it takes away from that so i can see why they don't necessarily plug that that um part of his life and he also might not want it plugged which is fair enough um but then adesanya being like the the fast nimble ninja fighter he's like into like anime he knows all those little anime moves and stuff uh and he comes out he's wearing like crazy stuff i'm pretty sure he was, was he wearing like some kind of like slave collar or something um, in the he was uh, wearing a dog collar and he said because he's going to they asked him the question and he said i've got it on because right the dog's coming out of me or something like that. Ah, okay. I was wondering why he was wearing it. I was like, I'm trying to, I, I figured it was maybe something to do with him. Like, you know, like a slave to the game or like slaving away. Like he, he became like, you know, he was owned by that experience and he was like possessed by it. But the dog thing makes perfect sense. But yeah, like, again, real visual guy. He does like, they're the only two fighters I can think. Well, I can think of another one actually, but they're two fighters that do walkouts they actually do walkouts like old school walkouts and not um just running to the cage or walking to the cage looking real focused i think that's a shame the ufc is missing a trick with that for sure yeah because like, the boxers um, do it really well don't they so yeah let's let's go back to the book wide for story um, yes if i was to say the one the main thing i've learned from this book over everything else is all first drafts of shit that was yes. an actual quote from the book is they say all first drafts of shit. And and the, you, you have got a perfect example of this. You've helped me recently with my most recent webinar. Um, and the very first draft, you remember I got you to critique it and go through it and rearrange some of the story structures and things inside it. Yeah. Um, and it was shit. Okay. And a lot of people would have done that first draft. And, and writing a two hour presentation is kind of like writing a book, but all first drafts, like this book here in a world full of sheep, fuck you, I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. That book, has probably been rewritten, I don't know, four or five times. But also, when writing that book, um, I deleted probably half of the chapters because they weren't relevant to what I wanted to be able to do for an entrepreneur. It's, it's like a step-by-step -step pro progression for an entrepreneur. But it's, it's understanding that all first drafts are shit. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you're writing or what you're trying to write. Your first draft is going to be terrible. So just get it out of you. Just get it all on, onto the page. Keep doing it. Yeah. And then... Another thing that, that was said there is don't let people who who are like friends and family and people who can fill in the gaps read us, especially if you're writing a memoir or you're writing a, a story of your life. Then if my mother was reading a story of my life, okay, um, she could she could read through a story of my life and it would say, okay, he did this, 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 and then she could fill in the gaps for the bits that I'd not explained properly. Whereas a person who doesn't know me would be in a situation where they would be looking at my story and they'd be like, oh, this doesn't make any sense because what happened in this, 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 and this. So you've got to be careful who you get to reread your story. But my, yeah, yeah, the biggest thing I take away from this is all first drafts of shit. And it doesn't matter if you're writing a song. It doesn't matter if you're writing a book. It doesn't matter if you're writing a movie. It doesn't matter if you're writing children's books like you're, you're in the process of doing at the minute. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Every first draft is shit. So be willing to write the first draft and then rewrite the first draft and then rewrite the first draft and keep rewriting until you get it perfect. Because yeah. we 
did a webinar last night with, with the webinar that we've been working on for the last few months and it, it, it absolutely smashed it. And it will do now Way going better. forward because the new draft's brilliant. You just have to think about it. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? You have to get the reps in and, and yep. you know, the, the more you do something, the better you'll get at it. But it's important to look at the first draft, I think, as like the raw materials. Like this is what I'm going to use and out of this, I'm going to sculpt something that's that's, you know, uh, marketable uh, yeah. that people are going to want to read. Um, but, you know, the raw materials are there. So you can't, like, don't, obviously, don't mess it up deliberately because you're like, ah, it's the first draft, who cares? But it is the first draft, who cares? Like, you have to yep. get it out there at least. Um, yeah, with, uh, in regards to, we, we would call it workshopping at uni when we had, when we'd written something and we were trying to get um, uh, people's opinions. Um we do work be called workshopping and the first semester the entire first semester was pretty much just learning how to workshop because it's such an important thing that if you get it wrong it can absolutely screw up your writing completely and and it can make you feel self-conscious and not want to come back into class too so they the uni thought it was really important that we just learn how to workshop learn how to critique stuff okay now how do you uh, what what's because you did it with my webinar when i got because i I have you guys, uh, you just take turns at coming onto a webinar, don't you? And 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 mm-hmm. watching it and answering questions. And 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 the first time you came on and d- did my webinar, and and the information you gave me was 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 massive. It was like it, it completely restructured the webinar and it changed it to the point where instantly I've seen a a a a much bigger financial uptake because I'm not taking the story from here, then going to here and then going back to where I was over here with the story um, in the presentation. And it's like, that was, so how, how did they get you so good at that? Well, to be honest, the, the main thing that it was just, I think honestly, that is just experience of, of having to workshop lots of people's things. You just kind of sort of know what to look for is also, I, I find is look for the things that the writer will overlook. Like look for the things that writers are obviously going to overlook. And the story, especially personal sp- stories, like you just said, a really good example of that is just you're telling a story where you know what comes next. So even though you've left me on a bit of a cliffhanger yep. and to go away and talk about a process or something that, that, that you feel like needs to be said then, uh, I'm still waiting for the story to come back. So I'm looking at that middle element and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm... You know, I want to be in the story, but I'm off here in the woods and I want to get back to the story and I don't know how I have to just wait for you to finish. So it doesn't matter how good the process is that you've just talked about, how much that's going to change my business or whatever. Uh, I'm not going to listen because I want to be back where the story is. So that's something that lots of people do. Really, really common yeah, thing. Yeah, they go off on a tangent. Well, yeah, because they know, they know where the story's going. So they're like, yeah, I know where this goes. So it's fine. I can move away. It's safe. But when you're being subjected to it it's like no please take me back you're getting blue balls just the worst um <laughs> but uh yeah and the main thing with workshopping though was just protecting people's feelings really um because they say like there was a quote it said you know like what? Uh, i would have told my teacher to fuck off with that i'd have been like not a chance am i thinking about someone's feelings right you you imagine going to university and you want to become a doctor, yeah? And people are like, yeah, I know he's going to cut somebody's heart out and replace it with another heart, but you've got to think about his feelings. He's like, no, you fucking don't. Because if if, if you're a writer and you, you want to be good, you need people to... St- I, I, what did I say to you yesterday? Yes. Don't give me positive uh, feedback. Give me negative feedback on what I'm doing because positive feedback is designed to to 
to make people fail. Well, it's, Sorry, to stroke, it's, it's designed to stroke the ego, whereas negative feedback is designed yeah. to make you better. But my the point of protecting people's feelings in the workshopping thing, the reason they were doing it is because we were, have, we were in these cohorts and these classes that we were going to stay with for the next few years. So if I lead off with, and that's not to say you can't be critical. They just said it has to be constructive, which is, I think, a yeah, really that good makes rule. Sense. But if you go in and you say like, you know, for every, you say five things that's wrong with the story and you don't tell them one good thing, or you, you can't pick out anything positive for them to keep doing. It's all just like, yeah, this needs a rewrite. This didn't make sense. I didn't like this character. Um, there's a way of saying it. Uh, which is yep. better, which is asking them questions about it um, because then they critique themselves, which is much easier. So that's one way to protect their feelings. But the reason to protect their feelings is because then they have to workshop your work. And if they're like, that asshole hated my character and I love that character, that character's me and I've rewritten this character to be exactly like me and he said that that character sucks and I hate it, they're going to start just going at your work and it's not even going to be unconstructed. It's not that it, the criticism they give will just be they'll critique anything is they will make up things to critique. They'll critique things that are good and you'll yeah, end you up changing good things. Say you're full of shit. Would say like, say, say somebody, you critique their things. Everybody else is going to agree. They critique your things and they're just trying to be vindictive. The rest of the class is going to, I would have been to the teacher. I'd have said to the teacher, we can't do it that way. You can't think about people's feelings. We all want to be good writers. We want to be writers. We want to write books. We want to get to the top of the game. And you know, who's never, ever, ever going to give you an inch not even a millimeter is the reader. The reader's going to pick up the book. They're going to get to a certain point and think that makes no sense. Throw it in the bin. Done. Yes. And That's now they have the internet too. So they will write an awful review about you. Yeah, it's true. I, I think they, they did miss a bit of a trick with it. And, and uh, yeah, there was quite, to be fair, workshopping all the time was it's pretty awkward and like laying yourself bare like that in front of some, someone. And, and, and it actually, for me at least, because obviously I'm a people pleaser, the thing that, Oh, I don't know if it's people please, but I, I knew my audience because my audience was my workshop group. But what I needed to think to myself was my audience isn't a workshop group. It's a group of, uh, you know, teenage yeah. young adult readers from this. But I was got caught up in keeping my workshopping group happy that they became my target audience. So I was writing things that they loved and were really entertained by. But by the time I had to flesh them out and submit them to my lecturer, I was like, I don't even know why I'm writing about this. It's not that. It's not what I wanted to write about. I'm just like trying to come up with a funny little script or something that subverts the expectation or a really nice little cliffhanger or uh, something like that that's going to really um, excite my workshopping group. So. so you need to know your audience and you need to write for that particular audience. And it's just, that's, that's another thing that brings us back again to sales. Everything I bring back to sales because everything I do is around sales. Uh, but again, it's it's... You have to know your audience. There's no point in trying to sell something like 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 the, people love gimmicks and and gimmicks sell like crazy. Like um, there was a film I can't remember what it was called, but it was a, it, she picks up this guy and and they're on about these seven minute abs, and and he's he's a serial killer in it. It's a comedy, and he's like no 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 no, it's not seven, it's, it's six. No, he's on about seven minute abs, and he's got this special thing that he's created, and he's, he's a serial. And the thing is, well, what happens when somebody releases six minute abs, and he's like no no no, that's not gonna happen. It can't happen. And it, but people love gimmicks. Like like uh, do you remember the fidget spinners that came out recently? I don't know if it was as yeah. big in the states, but the. Uh, Autistic, my, my daughter's autistic and she, she loves things like that, right? 
and yeah. they, they went crazy they exploded and then and then they disappeared pretty much still people get them but they're not like they were where they were selling and it was one of the biggest searches online so people love gimmicks and they love thingies but you do need to recognize who your audience are because if you don't know your audience then you're never ever ever going to 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 resonate with them that you're not going to be able to click with them in fact there was something else that was in the book that was really good and it talked about and i don't know if that was this book i think it was this book or am i am i am i reading other stuff which tells you that, that right at the beginning of a book what you want to try and do is get the full um the, the, the main character uh so, so that they understand the mission the, 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 where they want to get to and who they are as a thing in the first few paragraphs yes was that in this book yeah i think so yeah that was i think it was talking about how yeah all of these things need to get established really fast you need to establish it quick and um, stephen king does it good in one of his books i can't remember what the what the book was called but he he wrote like a two page um think about a guy turning up at a house with a scalpel and killing somebody and all that at the beginning right and and, and i read them first two pages and it was a 700 page book right and if i hadn't read those first two pages because then it went back to a boring bit straight after that if i hadn't read that first bit about that murder scene and the thing that was in the book at the beginning that was two pages there's no way i'd have even considered reading a 700 page book um but when yeah. when, when i read the first two pages i was hooked and it was like wow and then it took me out of that story and it's like, so it was kind of like a cliffhanger to explain, right, what's going to happen next. And, and I really enjoyed that because I was waiting for the, for, to, to figure out what the rest of that story was. I knew what the, the book was about. And I think getting out, trying to introduce people to, to your main character, their mission and their internal, who they are internally in the first page or two um, is always a good idea as long yeah. as you don't give too much away. Well, yeah, they say that your story should start when the internal and external conflict, the internal and, and external conflict begins. I think that is like the point of when the story should should start. Otherwise, you pick up, you will pick up the story too late and you have to have a flashback to tell you yeah. why this is happening. Back to when the character was nine, because it's no point in the story. Yeah, it's just it ends up taking things away and, and you get bored. Yeah, I was reading a... Uh, um, I, it's, it's a good example of something that's a great hook, um, but it didn't hook me well enough because I didn't finish reading it. But I had other, I was moving away and I couldn't take the book with me is why I didn't finish reading it. Um, but it's called Pillars of the Earth. It's like a thousand page book. It's massive. Um, and it's, uh, you, you think it's quite boring. It's about uh, an architect or he's a builder. He builds cathedrals this character the main character builds cathedrals and it goes like almost like a hundred years of story that follows his family and all of this stuff is very very wide um and i was like oh man this is going to be an absolute nightmare to read but the author he was uh he's a young he was a young guy when he wrote it. i think he was like 27 and uh he'd only written thrillers beforehand and so i opened this book and honestly from page one jesus it just dragged me away i was like kicking and screaming i had no idea where i was going and it was just taking me it was like he's building this little farmhouse he needs some money winter's coming his wife's heavily pregnant and then everything uh bad that could happen does happen so uh they have they save up money to buy a pig and the pig gets stolen by a bandit and sold and they lose out on the money and then suddenly the woman starts having a baby and they can't get to a house and the winter's coming in and they deliver the baby hooray but then the woman dies his wife dies and you're like oh god and then the baby dies 
and he's like oh jesus the baby's dead so he buries the um buries the wife and he he's like oh, i don't know what to do with the baby i think it's you know I, I, it's gonna it's dead it's gonna die or or he thinks it's dead so he puts it on top of the mother's grave thinking like oh well you know like the wildlife will 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 take it away but then he hears it crying and he's like oh god it is alive and he like has to go back but when he gets there it's gone uh, and this monastery on top of a hill has taken it and, and is, uh is this is this meant to be a true story or is this like a thriller it's, it's meant to be like this long like historical novel about uh this guy who builds like a bunch of like salisbury and winchester cathedral and stuff in like the 1100s it's like a really like medieval style but it's this huge book but the intro is so fast-paced that it's like how does he do this for a thousand pages he's got to calm down the, the writer's gonna have a heart attack or i am like if we continue and, you straight away I nearly cried, mate. Honestly, I was nearly <laughs> wept when his wife died. When he wakes up and his wife is dead next to him after they've just delivered this baby, against all the odds, and he wakes up and she's cold, and it's like, damn, lethal weapon. I started watching it a few days ago, and that's how it starts. Actually, he's dead excited. He's on the phone to his missus. He's in this gun shooting back and forth thing with these guys, and then she's right. like, "I'm having the baby." She phones him up. She's having the baby. He's dead excited. He's like, right. So he pulls out a sniper rifle, shoots the car, makes it blow up rather than getting <laughs> into this gunfight because he's doing it on purpose because he's crazy. And then as he's driving to the okay. hospital to meet her, she gets hit by a truck. She's pregnant. Oh. They both die. He runs into Then you see him run into the hospital with a bunch of flowers in his hand, uh, dead excited to see his wife. And then he gets told, sorry, there's been an accident. And it's like, and that's what got me. I watched that first bit because normally I'm like, I don't want to watch anything on Netflix because I don't want to... Um, get hooked onto a thing but that hooked me yeah. like, oh my god you like the character straight away you feel for him which is brilliant. Yeah. Like, so, wired for a story would you recommend it for people if you would who would you recommend if, it for yeah i would recommend it if you want to write a story if you want to write a book if you want to write a successful book or if you've already written a book and you're like i you know you need to do a rewrite and you want some help with rewriting your story and things to look for in the story that you've already written and how to change those things to, and adapt them to make them more appealing to your potential readership, I would recommend definitely. If you are like me and you're looking for the sort of evolutionary biology behind why we're so attracted to stories and why certain narratives hit certain, hit certain notes and we just can't get enough of them, this is going to disappoint you a little bit because it doesn't go into that kind of depth on that cognitive level um that i thought it would i think maybe it was a marketing issue i think if you're looking to study like you would in university then this book is brilliant if you're looking to yeah. be entertained and learn at the same time then pick something else that's a point if you have time on if you have a bit of space on your reading list if you're studying writing at university like i did i would read that book i wish i'd read it at uni yeah, I had to read all of my lecturers' books because they needed to sell them. Yeah, I'm looking to be entertained, so I hated it. But the, the writer knows what she's talking about. Um, yeah, so she does. We're back next week at 11 a.m. UK time. What book yes, are we indeed. doing next week, Callum? Yeah, next week we are looking at the Chimp Paradox. What does that say on the bottom? The Mind Management Program for Confidence, Success, and Happiness. I like the sound of this one. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I think this will be good. Very excited for this one. Yeah, I, I know a couple of people that have read this already and they recommended it to me in Who's the past. Who's it from? Professor Stephen Peters. Yeah, Professor Steve Peters. Right, give me a second. Before you do anything else with that, let me go over to Amazon. 
And let me get what's it called? The chimp the chimp paradox. Paradox. Okay, let me get onto that. Let me go. Let me find the actual paperback version of it, which will be that one there. And then I want to go. Get the short link and bring it over and let me paste that into the chat so that anyone who watches this and wants to join along and read with us and then be more involved. Last week, we had loads of people involved. Now, the reason we had loads of people involved last week over this week is very simply the book this week was not as good. Um, whereas, whereas last week was, was, was much, much better. So if you go over to at the Y debate on YouTube, you'll be able to see the ones we've already done. And yes. we're going to start putting about four or five books in front. We'll be booking them on the live tab at the Y debate so that you can see what we're going to do and you can obviously purchase the books and read along with us and be more involved on the uh, on the chat side of things last week yeah, we had loads and loads of people chatting with us because the book was much better and it had a lot more interesting stories unfortunately this one was a bit of a flop because yeah unless you're trying to be a writer at uni i think this is a waste of time but then again i learned loads i just had to really suffer yeah i had to work for it it was the hero's journey in a way yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know what what did he say right do you know right if you if you don't have to work for something you don't appreciate it okay kind of true it's hard work but you'll appreciate what you learn because <laughs> it's fucking hard work whereas it's true some, like expert secrets by russell brunson for example or dot-com secrets by russell brunson or influence by robert caldini those books you do not need to work hard to get through them and the amount that you learn from them is is, is brilliant uh, predictably irrational that we did the other week um awesome book those books are such a good read that you don't have to work hard to get the information but do you do you appreciate them the same in fact i definitely appreciate influence by robert caldini i've got a thing up there that says persuasion and it's got reciprocity scarcity authority uh, consistency um i can't i can't read that what liking consensus and unity i've actually got it on my wall um and i and you've got the epiphany bridge story script from i do expert secrets i've actually got a card in front of my desk there with it on uh so the type of things you learn from some of these books that are not such hard work and maybe we do appreciate them more i don't know anyway it's been a good one and we will right. see you guys um next week and we're doing the chimp paradox is that what it's called the chimp paradox yep yep and i put a link chimp in paradox. the chat so you can click on it it'll take you to amazon uk but if you just change dot uk to dot com it'll it'll do the It'll do the automatically change. And we'll see you next week. Brilliant. See you Cheers. then. See you later, Colin. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye, bye. bye.